Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. And welcome to White Wine Question Time, the podcast that asks its guests three thought-provoking questions over three glasses of wine. And my guest this week is one of the nation's best-loved cooks, a BAFTA-winning writer, broadcaster and campaigner who's sitting on a culinary empire of books and TV shows stretching back well over 20 years now. An Eton and Oxford graduate, he started his professional relationship with food in some of London's finest kitchens. But after getting his marching orders from his position as a sous chef at the River Cafe, he had a massive change of heart, shifting to becoming a food writer, with his work published in every newspaper going from The Times to The Guardian, where he had regular column for many years. But everything changed in the late 90s when he found himself to be the new owner of a former gatekeeper's cottage lodge in Netherby in Dorset. The house dubbed River Cottage became the setting for a Channel 4 TV series of the same name and then came the award-winning River Cottage Cookbook 2, marking the beginning of a huge and varied journey through food and countryside cooking. From cooking schools to restaurants, the River Cottage ethos is all about uncompromising commitment to seasonal ethically produced food and concern for the environment. Now with a bibliography in the double digits, a new TV series, River Cottage Reunited on More 4, and a brand new cookbook, River Cottage Good Comfort, about to hit your shelves. It seems like as good a time as any to dial him up and chat to the man behind it all. So let's say hello to Hugh Fernley Whittingstall. <laughs> How are you, sir? 
I'm very good, Kate. I'm embarrassed and honoured and touched by your exuberant introduction, uh, telling me things about myself that I barely even knew. But it's uh, it's very sweet of you to say so many nice things. But it's all true, Hugh. I vaguely recognise the chap you're talking about, but uh, I, I don't necessarily completely see him in the mirror every morning. But yeah, it is. You're right. <laughs> those, those things have happened one way or another. I think as well, what we do as human beings is we carry around the stuff that we didn't do so well. So that's the stuff that we end up kind of using to define ourselves. But actually, that is the hue I read and researched and came away with from a from a life that's been very well reported. I mean, 20 odd years now, uh, you've been a man who's been the subject of headlines rather just than just the one that's checking them after the subs have played with your copy. Gosh, I'm not sure I've been the subject of many headlines. Yeah, I mean, a lot of your campaign work, though, is about generating awareness. And in order to do that, you have to be somebody that that can rouse the headline. That is true. Yes, we like a good stunt when we're trying to get the attention of the public or trying to nudge uh, big business or government to, uh, you know, to make a difference in the world of food, farming, the environment. We don't we don't mind uh, a bit of doorstepping, a bit of rabble rousing and uh, a even the odd headline, yeah, it, goes, it gets the job done sometimes. And you can almost see when you do kind of start to wage um, the many wars that you are, are are trying to win, you can almost see them go, oh, God, it's him. He's really good at this. Damn, educated, committed and knowledgeable. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I think probably that there might be a, a few people in the um, press department of some of the major supermarkets who when an email <laughs> pins into their in-tray, yes. uh, maybe for a minute go, oh gosh, that's not really how I was hoping my day would go. That, 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 I, I, I'm, I can recognise that. Yeah, yeah, I think, I think that's true. I think you and Jamie Oliver, they're like, there's a bit of like, oh God, really? And if you two ever come together to work alongside well, one another. Fact. Yeah, we very much have actually, yeah. Uh, back in the day for Channel 4, we did a number of seasons together. We even roped Gordon in for, for a couple of them, but we did Fish Fight together and we did some stuff about farm animal welfare. We, you know, we know each other, we work together and, uh, you know, there's strength in numbers. Two, two, two people can shout louder than one. It's the ultimate uh, scenario where too many cooks don't spoil the broth, isn't it? Because the more the merrier on that bandwagon. Well, we, we hope so. I don't know, maybe uh, three chefs is too many for the broth. <laughs> but, but no, I mean, it, it's it's nice not always to be banging the, the, the drum on your own and to have a, a fellow person saying, yes, that does make sense. That is important. Uh, he hasn't lost his marbles. I agree. <laughs> now, um, I wanted to dive into a series of questions with you that I hope will enable us to sort of unpack some of the most fascinating parts of a very varied career. Um, and ultimately, we will end on your new book, which is all about learning to, to re-love the foods that we consider to be of great comfort by swapping out just a few of the, not killer ingredients, but ultimately the ones that aren't terribly good for us. Um, so we'll come to that in a, in a little while, if that's all right. But first and foremost, I wanted to map your journey through life via the food that punctuates it. So here we go. Question number one. You have had the most varied career. Um, 
thinking about where your kind of love of food probably started, I would imagine in the halls of, some would say the social elite at Eton and Oxford alongside future prime ministers and politicians and industry game changers through to the kitchens of the hippest restaurants in London to where you are now, right out in the sticks, really, in the rolling hills of the West Country. So can you chart for me your life through food and which dishes represent the most seminal moments and eras of your life thus far, Hugh? Well, it definitely goes back further than the school days to which you refer. It's really all started for me at home with my, both my mum and my, and my granny, both very good cooks whose cooking I loved. Uh, I was one of those slightly restless kids who I, you know, I like to be outside. My dad used to do an impersonation of me saying, what can I do? I'm bored. Uh, but my mum found a really good answer to that question, which was to stick me on a chair in the kitchen and give me some ingredients to play with and help me along with a few recipes and get me involved in the cooking that she was doing. And then I was instantly no longer bored, but engaged and excited and, and having a lovely time in the kitchen. And I'd say this to all parents, I mean, it's great to have kids who can cook, but you will go through a phase. It might last months. It might last years where they're going to make your kitchen messier than you would like it to be. I would say if you can get through that period of indulgence so that your kids, I mean, that's not to say don't encourage them or, 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 or even insist that they clear up after themselves, um, but uh, just let them, let, let them play a bit in the kitchen. Let them have fun. Let them enjoy the experience of getting to know food and getting to feel at ease with ingredients because through that um, lovely experience, I, I learned to make many dishes reasonably competently by the age of seven or eight. And I actually put in charge of my mum's trendy 1970s dinner parties. Uh, not Sorry, in, in, in charge of the pud, I should add, because like most kids at the beginning, I wanted to cook mainly sweet treats and baked goods and puddings and things like that. But there was probably one thing that I remember that, was just goes right to the heart of what home cooking means to me. And it's actually a savoury dish, not a sweet thing. And it's the way my mum used to make a shepherd's pie with the leftovers from the roast leg of lamb. And it might be on, on the Tuesday or Wednesday if we'd had a Sunday roast. And she used to cut all the meat off the bone and put it in a pile. And she cut an onion into slices. And we had one of those old crank-handled mincing machines that you bolt to the side of the kitchen table and you know it's got a kind of like a, a, a twisty bit of metal going through the middle of it, and you yeah. feed the, the 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 meat or whatever you're mincing into it. And I got to turn the handle because if she didn't want to mince my fingers, I, if I if I'd been sticking the, the meat, but she would put the meat in, and then the onions, and then at the very end she'd put a, a, a crust of bread through to clean the mincer. But that would also end up with the with the meat and the onions, and then she'd fry it all up. And if there was a bit of leftover gravy, that would go in, and a squirt of tomato paste from a tube would go in, and maybe a little dash of wine, and she'd bubble it all up and put it in a pie dish and top it with lovely creamy mashed potato and that i had the, the two exciting jobs were mincing the mincing the lamb but also when the mashed potato had gone on making a pattern with a fork so that it was mm. all sort of like little tufty mountains of mash on top so that when you put it in the hot oven it got all brown and crispy on the top of the mash 
and then you'd have the lovely saucy mints bubbling up and trickling down the side of the pie dish. Mm. That still is the, the, the shepherd's pie is just the ultimate comfort food for me. And of course, there's a version of it in, in, in the new book. But this time you're, you're not just doing the mash with potatoes, you're introducing butter beans, which makes great sense. And the moment I read that, I thought, God, why have I not thought of that? Because actually what you're giving yourself by way of fuel and taste and texture is all the good stuff without any of, I, I would imagine, the compromise. The, I mean, the thing about um, mashes, uh, potato mash is lovely, but you can, you can add other things to mash. So I love to make a mash that's got like maybe two thirds potato and one third celeriac. Or as you say, mash in some creamy beans with the potatoes. I still put a, a decent dash of butter in there and a, and a little trickle of milk to bring it all together. Um, but then you get extra textures and flavours from these other ingredients. And it's just nice to be a bit playful with tradition and to make sure there's lots and lots of the good things in a dish, as well as the obvious things that, you that, that you know, go way back to the origins of the recipe. So that, that's the dish. I mean, you, you're right. You've, you've reversioned that. You've done it as a shepherd's pie and as a cottage pie, so the, the, the lamb and the beef. Can I just ask, I didn't know, am I being a heathen, that you could mince meat that's already been cooked? That's what you're talking about there. That's what your mum was doing with the leftovers, yeah? Uh, you can also just chop it up or, wow. you can, or you can pop it in your food processor. It's important not to, you don't want to turn it into pate. Sometimes I make it from scratch with, with you know, minced uh, fresh lamb, but I still think the best shepherd's pie is made with leftover meat from a roast. And I would probably chop it by hand now uh, and keep it a little bit chunkier um, than, than the mince that my mum used to make back in the day. So you became a bit of a supporting uh, staff member when it came to her 70s dinner parties. I remember them well. My parents were getting very excited about fondue, for example. Yes. Jelly tomato ring with avocado mousse and prawn sprinkled on top. That was the kind of thing that would go down in our house. That's fancy because we had, so various chefs have appeared on the podcast over the years. Tom Kerridge and I, uh, we recently shared our love of growing up in Gloucestershire. And um, we weren't raised on the kind of food that you're discussing. Um, we were raised mainly on things like Finder's crispy pancakes. But well, I, I'd just like to be very clear that my, this was when my mum was pushing the boat out for dinner. We ate a lot of Finder's crispy pancakes. <laughs> uh, they, were, they were literally one of my favourite things. And another one, uh, there was some, I mean, Angel Delight went down well in our house uh, and there was a strange kind of chocolate mousse you could get that when you took the lid off, there was a, a weird little flower of frozen. It was a semi-frozen mousse. It had a little flower of cream in the middle of it. And yes. Which you were then supposed to sort of stir and swirl into your mousse. Uh, which felt like the height of sophistication, did it not, alongside oh, a slice it, uh, of Vienna? Oh, very much did, yeah. Very much did, yeah. <laughs> So once you um, left your mother's kitchen, uh, I mean, we, we talk about uh, the schools that you went to. Um, did you board at school? Was it breakfast, lunch and dinner uh, were taken at school? Yes, I was at boarding school and the food, no great surprise, was not amazing. In fact, most of the time it was pretty horrible. But one of the was things it? that we got to do uh, at school, uh, we, made, we were allowed to make our own tea. And we had access to a tiny little kitchen, uh, which we would share. And uh, it had a small grill in it. And also sometimes it had an actual toaster. Sometimes we had to make toast under a grill. But basically, we learned to do a lot of things with toast. Um, there were those <laughs> slightly scary things you could get called toast toppers, which were actually 
in a tin, it's like cheese sauce in a tin, which might have sort of something odd in it, like minced up prawns or a bit of kipper in it or something like that. And you spread them on the toast. But we actually sort of found our own feet in terms of things you could put on toast and then put under the grill. And, uh, and it, you know, it wasn't just cheese. Other things came into play. Uh, one favourite was actually cream cheese and marmalade put under the grill until they kind of bubbled into each other. You have to be careful because, of course, the marmalade burning hot and, uh, yeah. and, and cause you some quite major injuries. People would imagine that the food at Eton uh, and Oxford might be slightly a grade above uh, the kind of food that most kids were eating in other schools around the country. You're saying not so much, no? I don't think really. I mean, you know, we had spam fritters along with everybody else and, you know, uh, occasionally uh, liver was rolled out and that wasn't going to be popular. I think there was, a, I think school food is a bit of a leveller, really. I think that, uh, I mean, yeah. it, it may have changed now, but, uh, I, you know, the things that haunted us at different schools were pretty much the same. Did you miss having access on a daily basis to a working kitchen, a kitchen that you could go and play in, having developed this kind of early romance with food? Very much so. And one of the great divides for me uh, uh, from uh, boarding school and home was, was, was food, you know, and, the, and going home, it was instantly the, the freedom to cook, to join my mum in the kitchen and crack on and help with whatever was going down, but also to cook stuff, you know, on my own. And I got quite good at pulling cookbooks off the shelves and following recipes and looking out for things that I thought would be interesting. And I spent quite a lot of my school holidays cooking and, uh, you know, not doing other things as well. I love being outside. I, I loved, um, you know, my, my mum and dad lived in Gloucestershire uh, for a while and, uh, in the country. And then they moved to Cheltenham. But while we were in, uh, in a, a rented farmhouse near Sirencester, my dad got into growing veg. So that was all fun and, you know, potting peas and popping them straight in your mouth and having having that experience at a young age and and, and understanding, if not quite knowing that, that this how important this was, but just having that contact with watching food being grown and having food coming into your kitchen from the garden, making that link between the land and the kitchen. You know, we still did our weekly shop in the supermarket and, you know, bought the burgers and the sausages and the rest of it. But the fact that we were then able to have peas on the side that, that came from the garden, that was something. And that, I think that really, oh, that, that took root and that's been, been with me all my life. And that's something that I now enjoy doing as much as anything else here in Devon is pottering in the garden, growing veg. But I think as a food education as well, all of, all of my uncles had allotments. So we would trade vegetables or fruits. So I would never have chosen to have a gooseberry crumble or a rhubarb crumble, but I did because we'd grown them and it felt special. So I think there's there's so much, it, it's not just the understanding of how the food chain works. Actually, I think it, it teaches kids to be way more adventurous with their palate, don't you? Absolutely. Although, I mean, I have to say, I was quite a fussy kid. Um, there were things that I couldn't go near as a kid growing up. Uh, mushrooms left. I was terrified that someone might try and make me eat a mushroom. I just couldn't go near them. And uh, uh, even tomatoes, actually, I, I had no problem with ketchup slurping that out of the bottle. But uh, the idea of a, of a sliced tomato. But of course, in those days, they didn't taste very much. And it wasn't until I went to work in a restaurant kitchen where the tomatoes were amazing and I had to kind of make an effort and buck up and and actually then I learned to love them and some of the foods that you you just 
that don't work for you when you're a kid. I, I'm a great believer in that you can learn you can learn to love things. You can you can find your way with things. I mean, who likes their first sip of beer? Frankly, you know, that, that, it's not it's not true. A treat and yet, and yet, so many persevere. <laughs> you can persevere with beer. You can persevere with mushrooms, uh, tomatoes, and many other things. Absolutely. What about? The ways uh, food has punctuated your romantic life. For example, you're married to um, a French lady. Um, so how did, was food part of your repertoire of winning her heart and winning her over? It ab- absolutely was. And, you know, being able to cook has always been a, a very useful thing if you're, you know, if you're romancing someone, if you're able to invite them around and cook them a nice meal. And uh, I, no, I absolutely know the first thing that I, I cooked for Marie. So it's a dish we, we still have sometimes. And it was a dish I'd learnt to make at the River Cafe or a version of. And it's courgettes cooked very slowly uh, in olive oil and a little bit of garlic. So instead of frying them to get them brown, you just keep them sizzling very gently until they start breaking down and the water comes out and they form this lovely creamy mush and then you season them with salt pepper finish it with a tiny bit of cream and stir it into pasta uh, sprinkling of parmesan and uh, maybe some toasted pine nuts and that is that's one of the most delicious vegetarian pasta sauces just is that the dish that you wooed her with that was the first thing i cooked for her when she came round to dinner and oh it went gosh. down well there were many other wooing dishes it wasn't it wasn't str- slam dunk i can tell you I had to work hard in the kitchen quite a lot of dishes to, had to get the okay but we got there. We got there in the end. What about the food that most represents your youth? That the the the, the post kind of um, graduate years, where you're living alone, finding your feet, and finding your palate. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, I shared a house with friends at university. In varying degrees, we we all cooked a bit, and there was a dish that I that everyone seemed to enjoy that I would just roll out because everyone seemed to like it. And I learned to cook kedgeree. There's another dish I learned from my mum, but very, very simple version of rice, uh, hard-boiled eggs and smoked fish tossed together. Mm. But then we started to embellish it a bit and add a few fried onions. uh, And then coming to understand that kedgeree was a dish that had its origins in India, put a little curry powder in in, in the uh, Mm. uh, fried onions. Everybody seemed to like spicy food. This kedgeri evolved when I was a student into something that was a little bit spicier, uh, had a bit more going on. Those favourite dishes, they still get to the table because we love them so much. That's why I wanted to do this book so much. I wanted to get back to favourite family dishes, comfort food, and then just make a few little tweaks to make sure they were the best versions of these dish to, dishes to, to do us good as well as to make us happy. Things like the chocolate mousse and the and the fools and crumbles mm. and the brownies, and then savoury dishes like chili con carne and chicken and leek pie, and, and, and even a really delicious um, beef stew with dumplings. Toad in the hole is another real favourite. Ah, oh, uh, yeah, even uh, sausage rolls. Yes, sausage rolls. Gosh, with a nice flaky pastry. Uh, who doesn't love a sausage roll? And I, the other thing that I've done a lot in the recipes, you know, with, with, with the baked goods especially, but also with savoury pastries, I've gone either wholemeal or half wholemeal with the flour. And white flour is a useful ingredient, but almost all the good stuff has been taken out of it. So uh, cooking with wholemeal flours, not necessarily strong bread flours, but now you can get these really good light wholemeal flours and they make wonderful cakes and pastries. And 
People think, oh, isn't it going to be all stodgy? They, they've actually got more depth of flavour. The cakes are nuttier, uh, mm. the pastries are, uh, 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 you know, tastier. And I love cooking with these ingredients. And the same is true with dialing down the ingredients that we know are not brilliant for us. So sugar is a strange ingredient. So many of the traditional recipes we have for cakes and biscuits are loaded with sugar. And there's a strange assumption that they won't work unless they're loaded with sugar or people won't like them unless they're incredibly sweet. At River Cottage at the restaurant, the cookery school, we started taking 20 or 30 percent of the sugar out of all the sweet recipes we were doing. Nobody even notices. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're quite sweet enough. One of the easiest recipes in the book is what I call my oaty dunking cookie. It's just uh, wholemeal flour and oats with uh, melted butter and less than half the amount of sugar you'd find in any normal biscuit. It's plenty sweet enough. You just melt the butter and the sugar, stir in the flour and the oats. If you want to add a handful of chocolate chips or raisins, that works too. Pinch of spice can be really nice. It literally put, takes 10 minutes to mix this dough together. Put blobs, spoonfuls on a baking tray in the oven for 15 minutes. You've got these crispy, crumbly biscuits, very good for dunking in a cup of tea. Super satisfying and just nowhere near the amount of sugar than most old school recipes will give you. Plus all the goodness from the oats and the wholemeal flour. It's just like a, a you know, a hobnob made better for you and, and deliciously crumbly. It's like if the hobnob found the gym. It's if the hobnob found the gym, but even, I mean, uh, uh, was still the same old friendly face uh, that gives you all the comfort you need. Exactly. Okay, are you ready for your next question? One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You talk very openly about the difficult decisions you've had to make in life from uh, packing in a potential career as a top London chef to shifting your entire life and therefore family out to the countryside. And we can all see for ourselves how um, those have certainly paid off for you. And that's before we've even got into the campaigning, the difficult conversations, the challenging conversations you've had to uh, engineer sustain that's always very hard as well it's very it's very easy to stimulate a controversial conversation much harder to keep it running to some kind of 
um, outcome that is positive and affects change. So I wondered, could you talk me through some of the most difficult conversations and decisions that you've had to have with yourself? I had to make a decision. One of the key decisions I had to make is what to do next when I was fired from the River Cafe. Now, I had a great time there. I worked there for a little over six months and I learned a tremendous amount, but I didn't have any formal training. And I did, I mentioned this earlier on, that I was slightly indulged in the kitchen at home as I learned to cook with my mum. And I didn't have the discipline of uh, keeping my workspace uh, tidy and clearing up after myself. And I didn't have some of the sort of formal uh, skills that some of the other chefs in the restaurant had. And there, there just came a time when uh, also the River Cafe had a bit of a wake-up call because even though it was the most successful restaurant in, or the most talked about restaurant in London, we were all having wonderful dinners at the end at after service and t- talking long into the night and putting the world to rights. And I think they had a bit of a wake-up call that the profit margins weren't quite what they ought to be. So there was a bit of a clampdown. And uh, one of the... Uh, new chefs in was one of the oh. uh, first chefs out and that unfortunately was me and so my this wonderful time i was having came to a sudden end and it wasn't my plan and i had to make a decision and the decision was well do i go and find another job in another restaurant kitchen and and try and further my skills and i thought well if you've shown that you don't quite have the discipline or the approach to work in what's probably one of the most relaxed restaurant kitchens in london because actually the founders uh, Rose, Gray and Ruthie were, were self-taught, then maybe it wouldn't be a go- good idea to try and go and work in some uh, basement kitchen for a, a Michelin-starred chef or someone trying to get their third Michelin star with the stock pots flying past your head and the knives out. I thought that might not be what was right for me. So I decided to go and write about food and t- go and meet and talk to other chefs about the work that they were doing, see if I could find a way to capture that and... Uh, and and that's what I did. And that was difficult. I had to I, I had to write a lot of pieces and send them in to a lot of editors and uh, pitch various ideas uh, around food. And eventually I started to get a break and started to get a few things published. But I did that pivot from uh, being a, a chef to being a food writer. And I and uh, it wasn't easy, but I even the process of trying at that age, I was young enough and determined enough to to stick at it and make it work. It's very hard though, because you're literally cold calling, aren't you? When you're pitching ideas as a as a wannabe writer with no real bylines under your belt, it's very hard to get a name for yourself built or anybody to even agree to pay you. I mean, just getting paid is is this is a, is a hard yeah. one. The only way I could to, to do it was I felt was to write the copy and send it in and see what happened. And so I had to buy myself a, well, a secondhand fax machine. Remember that and I, and I write the thing, print it out and feed it through to the fax machine uh, and then wait for the phone to ring. And of course it didn't. So then I would get on the phone and try and ring the person I'd faxed and they wouldn't take the call. Uh, and so it was, it was a frustrating process. But every now and again, I got a call back or I got through on the phone and people gave me a break and a chance. Slowly, I managed to make my way into into the world of, of journalism, mainly as a food writer, but also sometimes doing travel things and feature things. And, and I just enjoyed it so much. It was brilliant. I actually did a stint on the obituaries desk of the Daily Telegraph with an amazing man called Hugh Massingbird. And 
that, that taught you a lot about pithy journalism, trying to capture the story of someone's life in a few newspaper columns. Mm -hmm. Uh, that was a that was a great training. I think that's something they should do in schools, you know, because you're quite right. It is um, it's something that's probably um, armed you well through life to be able to tell a story, somebody's story, a story, uh, and that's certainly what you've done with the campaign work uh, across your career. You've been able to tell stories in a way that is compelling. You know exactly what to put in the intro, exactly what should be in the second paragraph to keep people listening through to the next, uh, you know, to the next part of your not argument, but you're trying to win people over and create change. I don't, I mean, that, that's nice to hear you say that. I mean, I think, yes, you've got to be pithy. You've got to, I think that getting things across on TV is similar, but slightly different. You've got to cut to the chase. You haven't got people's mm -hmm. attention for very long. You've got to put yourself on the line. You've got to sometimes take a risk in a public space. You've got to get up with a megaphone, whether it's on a beach or in a shopping center and start, uh, trying to grab people's attention and not worrying too much about uh, wh what they think of you or whether they're going to give you the time of day. Of course, you do worry about it and it's very nerve wracking and you stand up there, uh, but somehow you d give it a go and give it your best shot. And, um, and, you know, and then, and then you're, you're grateful for the benefit of the edit, although the editors always like putting the bits in where you yeah. do get shouted down. Somebody does... Uh, heckle you or say something to bring you down a peg or two those bits go in too you know we're not uh, we're not afraid of putting them in because they're they're part of that story you're right i mean st storytelling is is such an important part of all our, our lives and that's also very very true of food and uh, food is full of great stories and the best foods have the best stories and i think it goes way back to there was a time not you know well in in terms of the the, the history of humanity it wasn't that long ago where we woke up we all woke up every day and the only real real game in town was where the next meal was coming from you know we were hunter gatherers yeah uh it was and we had to carry a great store of knowledge passed down by our parents about what fruit was ripe or how to winkle the fish out of the rock pool or how how to uh go and hunt a hugely scary beast and we needed to know these things to survive and most days were spent in the pursuit of food of one sort or another, whether it was uh, animal, vegetable or, or fish. But and, and, the, and then at the end of the day, what we did was sat down and share the food and told stories. And most of those stories were about how we got that food. So and so fell in yeah. a hole, so <laughs> fell out of the tree. We all had a good laugh. Um, but look what he brought back or yeah. look what she found and look what we're all eating. And isn't it isn't it delicious? And. Well done and thank you everyone for pulling together to bring this food to the table. Of course, life is different now and we have time for things other than hunting and gathering food. But we still have that need, I think, to get round the table with those we love, with our friends and family, tell some stories, including some stories about where the food came from. Those, you know, if we grew it ourselves, if it's a pinch of if a herb that we grew on a window box or something we found in the farmer's market or we met the person who grew it and they told us a good story. Mm. We can bring that to the table and share it with our family and friends. We're tapping into something very profound and elemental, I think. Uh, talking of profound and elemental, how did you get your family around the table and say to them, listen, we're going to invest in the river uh, cottage and uh, we're moving and don't worry, it's all going to be fine. How did that conversation go? Luckily, it was never quite as, as sort of, it certainly wasn't me saying this is what we're going to do 
uh, are you with me? It was uh, it was a more evolved and organic conversation than that. But that yes, there did come a time because the early the early days of River Cottage, I was still kind of living a double life. I was I was spending as much time as I could at River Cottage and making programs there. And uh, the reason we'd ended up there was it, it, you know it started off as a weekend cottage that I shared with a bunch of friends. Like a timeshare, yeah? Not kind of, yeah. There, well, there was me and my girlfriend, now my wife, and another friend, uh, another couple we, we, we spent a lot of time with. We d- decided to rent it together and go down there at weekends for holidays. But I kept spending more time there than everyone else. I would stay a bit later or go a bit earlier in the week. And, uh, and, then, I, and then I had this idea for, for the River Cottage TV show, which is, meant I wouldn't have to leave at all. Slightly inconvenient for them if we happen to be filming on a weekend, but everyone mucked in and, and uh, people were around quite a lot when we were making the show. Um, but it was strange because we were making a TV show about something that for me was quite real. I was in the process of leaving London and giving up the old life and trying to find out what it would be like to be more self-sufficient and to grow my own food. Um, uh, but then there came a point was, uh, is this permanent? Is this for real? And that's when I had to bring the rest of family with me. Um, and by the time we made that decision, uh, we had a son, Oscar, who was a, a year old. Marie was working in London as a journalist for the World Service, um, but she'd taken a break to look after Oscar. And the decision was, uh, what, what, what are we going to do? Are we half in London and half in the country, or are we going to move down to the country and make our life there? And with a kid at that point, we just thought, the country is the place to be for us as a family. And my wife made a very brave decision to retrain as a psychotherapist, in fact, as a, as a child and adolescent psychotherapist. Wow. Um, and up until that point, she'd been a foreign correspondent working for the World Service. So um, that was what that gave a certain flexibility. Uh, but we, we made that transition and we and over time, uh, we made it work. As a family, we feel that, uh, that the life we've had close to nature, as you put it at the beginning, out here in the sticks, uh, in, the, in the wind and the rain, but when the sun shines too, uh, we wake up every morning with a beautiful view of rolling hills and uh, going to collect our own breakfast egg from our chickens. It's, it's a great way and a very special way to be able to live. And we're delighted to have been able to live that life together and, and raise our kids here. Yeah, it sounds pretty idyllic. Um, what about the more difficult conversations that you've waged of late um, that are around educating and creating change to better the environment, our planet, the welfare of the animals that we eat or use the produce of? Um, what have been the most difficult and demanding of those conversations, Hugh? Well, it's a really interesting one because this is a conversation that everybody's having, you know, uh, I mean, okay, you can duck out of it if you want, but you can't duck out of the issues underpinning the conversation, which is, you know, the planet is changing, the climate is changing, uh, humanity, uh, our numbers are growing, the challenges of feeding uh, seven plus, eight plus billion people as it will be, uh, don't get any easier, and very, very difficult decisions have to be made. And they're, they're not in our hands, those decisions, but we can influence them. You know, the way that uh, food is farmed 
and the way that energy is uh, uh, driven and circulated around the planet. Uh, there are people trying to make a lot of money doing those activities. There are politicians trying to influence the way that they're done. But we have a voice too. And, and our strongest voice is the choices we make uh, when we go shopping and the choices we make uh, as consumers. And sometimes it doesn't feel like we've got a choice, but we do. You know, you, if, you, if you go into a shop and you choose one kind of food, you actually, it's, a, it's like a vote. You're voting for the system of farming that produced that food. If you, if you choose uh, organic meat, you vote for the organic system. If you choose uh, wholemeal flour over white flour, then you're saying make more of that and less of the other. And collectively as consumers, we can change things. We absolutely can. I mean, a lot of people will be driven regarding their choices by what they can afford. What are the most powerful and yet affordable choices you can make as a consumer when it comes to deciding to buy one thing over the other? Because obviously we all get charged more for organic produce. Of course we do. And these are difficult choices to make. The biggest choice that I would like everybody to have is to be able to cook, uh, to actually have the skills to put an affordable meal on the table using inexpensive ingredients that will give us some pleasure and keep our families healthy and well. It has not been considered that important that people can cook because the market's there, the supermarkets are there, the, the takeaways are there to provide cheap food that we can afford uh, that means we don't have the drudgery of cooking in our kitchens. And I think when that, when that first started to happen and convenience foods, frozen foods, microwave foods uh, became a new way of eating, it did feel like, uh, for many people, it felt like a release and an escape from time spent in the kitchen and a liberation. But unfortunately, what's happened with a lot of those foods that are made for us and, and, and actually kind of pushed at us very hard through advertising by very powerful companies, is they've started to become less and less healthy. Uh, those companies have found ways of using highly subsidized ingredients like white flours and refined fats and sugars, spinning them into all sorts of different shapes and sizes and layering them with some interesting flavors that we might actually find quite hard to resist. But those uh, super processed, sometimes called ultra processed foods that now comprise more than half our diets are, you know, I'm afraid we can't dodge this, they're making many of us very, very ill. Uh, they are the cause of the obesity epidemic. And they are, you know, they're, and they're the reason that one of the reasons that the NHS is under tremendous strain. When it comes to our health, food is our first important call. You know, the, the, uh, the choices we make about food are the front line for our health even before you get to, to uh, uh, the NHS looking after us when we get ill, the choices we make about, uh, around food are what uh, our best chances of staying well. It's true that it's very hard to eat healthily if, if you can't cook a healthy meal, because if you're on a really tight budget, that's gonna, and you, you just wanna get some energy inside your family, then you're gonna go for cheap calories and cheap calories tend not to be the healthiest calories. So we are in a fix and we are in a bit of a bind and, and, and there are no easy solutions. And so you're right. It's a difficult conversation and it's a complex one. And it's a conversation that politicians often try and deflect by saying, 
Ah, but it's about personal choice. You know, the food you choose, we can't tell people what to eat. We can't be the nanny state. But actually, the problem is big business does tell people what to eat and it tells them to eat foods that aren't good for them. And it offers them those unhealthy foods at very cheap prices. So we do have to push back. There is another side to that conversation. And in the end, it's it's partly about education. It's partly about trying to make sure that the healthier foods are not the more expensive ones. There's a, there, there's a, a thing uh, that's happening in the world of food called reformulation, that, that even the most, in, even the most uh, processed foods can be made a little healthier. They can be made with less sugar. They can be yeah. made with less salt. They can be made with wholer ingredients. Those are decisions that business can make. That's exactly what you're doing right now with, with good comfort, is you're saying you can still have this, but you can just have it better just slightly differently. Better, and often the ingredients that you're bigging up in these dishes aren't the most expensive. Putting putting some beans and pulses in there with the meat and adding extra veg and uh, you know, dialing down the sugar in your baking. Uh, these are things that you can do without necessarily affecting the cost. Good old fashioned dishes like, uh, like, you know, like toad in the hole, where you've got uh, a little bit of meat, your sausages, you know, it's a great alternative in terms of both energy consumption and the meat that you're using. It's a great alternative to a roast. It's a big family meal, a big hearty meal you can gather around, but you're wrapping those sausages in a nice blanket of batter. And if you use a light wholemeal flour for the batter, it's got a little bit of fiber in it. And then if you add some good things like big chunky roast onions and big wedges of apple alongside the potatoes, you're adding flavor and interest, but you're also making it a a healthier, heartier meal. Simple tweaks. It is pimping it up, isn't it? Absolutely. It's it's taking those dishes, uh, putting a little extra in that's good for you, dialing down the things that are not so great, and and celebrating the fact that you can bring something like that to the table and know that you're feeding your family well. Absolutely. Now, before we run out of time, I have one third and final question for you. So, can we dive in? book is all about subtle tweaks and changes but fundamentally it's about um, feeding your gut in a way that is healthy and I love the idea of better understanding our gut and also understanding the power of it because I don't know about you Hugh but I think that when we use that expression gut instinct we we can't we're, we're kind of dismissive of it actually it is a it is your body crying out telling you something so when did you learn to start listening to your gut and what kind of meaningful change has that brought about for you do you think yeah i think it's really interesting that the conversation about healthy food has come to uh, focus a lot on our our guts uh it's not a word everyone loves banding about but it's so important now and it's a really fascinating bit of science that's emerging on just how much of our well-being depends on things going well right there in the middle of our tummies, not just our physical health, but our, our mental health. Yeah. To the extent that we, we you know, we found out that the that the um the, the the things firing in our brain that that change our moods like dopamine and serotonin, they're not made in our brains, they're actually synthesized in our gut. So yeah. our guts need to be working well for those for those synapses uh, uh, uh things to do their job. And I think that's actually connects with what you were saying that that we we talk about gut feeling and gut instinct and there is a strange connection between the well-being in our gut and the and the 
and the things that make us feel that we're on the right track emotionally or that things are how we'd like them to be. I don't think people had understood before the science that you've just connected it to, Hugh, which is that actually that those those emotions that we rely on to keep us emotionally balanced are distilled in the gut and therefore they can only be kind of fermented and distilled in a good way, if I'm using the right words there, um, if we're feeding ourselves all the things that we need to make our head feel as happy as our gut should be. I think you can put it in those terms. I mean, the, the, the science is complicated, but I think the one thing that, that's good about this focus on the gut health that isn't so complicated is everyone agrees what it takes to make a healthy gut. And that is principally two things. Foods that are whole. When we say whole foods, we don't just mean brown rice and lentil, but we mean all foods that are whole. So fresh fruits and vegetables that haven't been mucked about and Seeds and nuts and pulses are part of it, but even meat and fish and uh, relatively unprocessed foods like uh, cheese and yogurt can all be part of a good, healthy, whole diet. For a long time, uh, dietitians and food scientists couldn't agree about much. Now they agree we need whole foods and lots of them. So variety is the other key. This is why it's really great to keep reminding yourself what actual what foods you and your family do like that maybe you haven't had for a while. Do a little bit of an audit. Ask, yeah. ask, ask your kids and your the rest of your family to remind what vegetables actually do you like? Might turn out to be something that you haven't had for a while. The seasons are a really good way of helping inform uh, the variety of your diet. Keep an eye on what's coming in new in the seasons and mix it up. Add extra things, you know, get the extra veg in there. Beans and lentils and carrots and onions and celery uh, and all the good things that you put in a nice stew along with the meat and the potatoes. Just keep it coming. Uh, people talk about the rainbow plate. Raw foods are great for you as well. Lots and lots of different crunchy, fresh, raw veg. In order to enjoy these foods, you don't have to go to an obscure set of recipes that are of, you know, a way of cooking that you're not familiar with. You can add them to the dishes you already know yeah, and love. Absolutely. And that's what, that's what uh, college good comfort is about. Sneak them in, add more of the good, dial down the things that are not so healthy and bring those healthy, hearty dishes to the table that will warm the cockles of your family and keep everybody happy and well. And you know what? It's exactly what we do when we're learning, when we're learning as parents, to, for example, to hide vegetables in our kids' foods. We just forget to do it for ourselves, don't we? Yeah, no, I think that's right. And, it, and I, I think there's so many uh, little tricks and uh, ways of tweaking things that they very quickly become second nature. And it's partly about getting those ingredients into your larder so that they're there for you. So you, and, and you know, tinned beans are great. You know, they're really healthy and incredibly convenient. Uh, and, you know, whenever I make a bolognese now, I sling in a tin of beans. And, and if it raised a couple of eyebrows the first time I did it, it nobody bats an eyelid now. So one should these things quickly become second nature and things that, 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 that might seem like, you know, going against the grain very quickly uh, become within a the third or fourth time you do them. Everybody's on board. No problem. Uh, what about gut instinct? Have you ever had that kind of screaming from your gut when you've when it's trying to tell you that something's wrong? It's almost like your hazard lights go on, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think that. Uh, your your gut speaks to you at times, at those times. You know, we talked about those big decisions you you make in your life, and uh, 
you know, whether it's whether you're going to move from the city to the country or whether you're going to change jobs or uh, really do something different. And if those are decisions you're making with your family, you've got to hope that their guts are telling them the same thing. Um, sometimes you talk about listening to your heart, don't you? But I think it's the feeling you get is often in your tummy that tells you what's right. When, when has your gut spoken to you and when has it been absolutely the right and, and the most sound advice in terms of preventing you from walking into potentially a nightmare? I guess one of the one of the most important uh, gut decisions I made was to walk away from a job I had in journalism and take a chance to go and pitch some TV ideas with a friend of mine and see if we could make something happen. And I, it's not that I didn't enjoy the job; it's just that it wasn't where I wanted to be, and it and and I, I knew that I wouldn't get the opportunity. To do that, to to try this other thing, unless I left that job. Sometimes you've got to, you know, you've got to make yourself unemployed to get to the next stage. Uh, then you're <laughs> gonna you're gonna pitch with a bit more vigor. You're gonna go after that thing that means a lot to you, rather than continuing with the thing you're at and saying, "Well, when I see that other opportunity, I'll know it and I'll jump." You've got to uh, actually get out and face that scary thing of you know, not having a job and maybe sleeping on a friend's floor for a while because you can't pay the rent because you're trying to make this other thing happen. And that happened. And was it frightening? Was it scary? Was your gut right to tell you, though, uh, to do otherwise and to feel the fear and do it anyway? Feel the fear and do it anyway. And I, I do you know what? I even read that book and it did actually help me make that call. And it took a long time. But uh, eventually, after lots and lots of trials and errors, uh, we sent in a piece of paper for an, with an idea for a show called Cook on the Wild Side, where we converted a Land Rover to a mobile kitchen and drove around discovering the joys of foraging and wild food. To our absolute astonishment, uh, those were the days maybe when TV companies were prepared to take risks on uh, unknown people who might just put something together. And they said, go on then, give it a whirl. And uh, we spent the summer driving around, uh, uh, finding wild mushrooms and learning the ways of the countryside and meeting some really fun and extraordinary people. And that was, uh, that was the precursor to River Cottage. You had to put everything on the black and hope that it came in. Yeah, you had to make yourself vulnerable. You had to get out there and spend all your time trying to make the thing you wanted happen and uh, take a chance that it might not. But we got there in the end. And here you are all these years later, still foraging, still kicking up a fuss and making sure that everybody listens to uh, the instincts that sit within your gut around what we all need to be doing to better support ourselves and the planet. Um, so I hope you continue to do that, Hugh. Um, you remain eternally fascinating and internally um, a great teacher. Kate, thank you so much. It's been lovely talking to you. Thank you for sharing those three luscious glasses of wine with me. They they help the conversation flow very well. Oh, Hugh, thank you. And continued success in all that you do. And, and please just keep those books coming. Uh, I believe it's either number 12 or number 14 that's about to hit the shelves now. Even you aren't quite sure as to what number you're at. No, you're right. But uh, yeah, I hope everyone enjoys it and it puts some good food on your family's table. 
Our huge thanks to the incredible Hugh Fernley Whittingstall. And don't forget, you can catch more of him on More 4 and All 4 at the River Cottage Reunited. And you can grab a copy of his brand new book, River Cottage Good Comfort, which is out now and available wherever you get your books. And if you're hungry for more great chat with brilliant broadcasters and TV chefs, then look no further than our back catalogue, where we have episodes with the Harry Bikers, Tom Kerridge, James Martin, Simon Rimmer, Greg Wallace, John Tarot, Lisa Faulkner, Grace Dent, Candice Brown, and so many more. Uh, my thanks to you, as always, for loaning us your ears for the last hour, and to Maria Nibs and the Yahoo Studios team, who produced the show with me. Editing is by Andy Agson, and our music comes courtesy of Andy Bell. I'll be back with great chat next Friday, I hope. Until then, take care. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.